Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode five of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Call to the West. In the last episode we heard about the two opposing leaders of the Byzantines and Ottomans, Constantine XI Palaeologus, who was to be the last Byzantine emperor, and his nemesis, the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet II, who had become known as Mehmet the Conqueror. We discussed how both leaders have become legends even to this day. Mehmet II is revered in modern Turkey and the wider Islamic world, not just for his conquests, but also for his piety and patronage of the arts and sciences and his re-establishment of Constantinople as one of the great cities of the world. And Constantine XI is still a legend in Greece, since he's meant to have been rescued by an angel and turned into marble and hidden beneath the golden gate of Constantinople, awaiting a call from God to be restored to life and reconquer both the city and re-establish the Byzantine Empire. But enough of legends. What did Constantine XI actually do? Well, as you'll hear in this episode, Constantine was a very intelligent, brave and pragmatic individual and he realised that the only way Constantinople could survive was if the West launched another military expedition or crusade to help it. But this was easier said than done because, as we've heard in other episodes, the crusading zeal of the 11th century which had resulted in the First Crusade had long gone and most people in Western Europe were pretty apathetic about both the recovery of the Holy Land as well as the fate of Constantinople. Of course, you remember that the Ottomans had decisively defeated two large Christian armies, one at Nicopolis in 1396 and then again at Varna in 1444, which meant that the Christian kingdoms in the Balkans, which were obviously the most directly threatened by the Ottomans, had been either destroyed or sufficiently cowed so that an appeal to save Constantinople really depended on the great Western monarchies in France, England and the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany. Now, one thing that didn't help Constantine was that people underestimated the new Sultan Mehmet, who at first appeared to be a bit of an incompetent and also not particularly warlike, both of which would be fairly quickly disproved, but unfortunately not in time to save Constantine. So, Constantine was in a pretty desperate situation and he had really only one bargaining chip to play with and that was the union of the Greek Orthodox Church with the Catholic Church in return for Western help. This had been promised by his predecessor John VIII at the Council of Florence in 1439 but it had never been properly implemented and this was therefore something that Constantine could promise to do in return for Western Aid. So, without further ado, I'll read from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. When, in 1451, news of Mehmet II's accession reached Western Europe, there was a sigh of relief that he seemed neither particularly capable nor warlike. 
Western Christendom was delighted to hear from Venice of the Sultan's amiability. After the humiliation of Nicopolis and Varna, no Western ruler was anxious to have to go out again to fight the Turks. It was far more agreeable to believe that there was simply no need for it. In addition, none of the Western rulers was in a position to take action since all had distractions at home. In Central Europe, the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick III of Habsburg, was far too busily occupied in arranging for his imperial coronation at Rome, which was to take place in 1452, and for which he had sold the liberties of the German church 14 years before. He had, moreover, to make good a claim to the thrones of Bohemia and Hungary, and so would never dream of cooperating with the Hungarian general John Hunyadi, regent for his rival, the boy Ladislavs V. King Charles VII of France had enough to do in trying to rehabilitate his country after the strains of the Hundred Years' War, and he had a dangerously powerful vassal in his cousin Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, whose lands and whose wealth were far greater than his own. Philip fancied himself as a crusader, but even if he could have risked absenting himself from his duchy, he remembered all too well the miserable story of the captivity of his father John, taken prisoner by the Turks at Nicopolis. Meanwhile, England, weakened by the disasters of the French wars and ruled by a saintly but half-imbecile king, Henry VI, was unlikely to spare soldiers for foreign adventures. No help nor even any interest could be expected from such distant monarchs as the Scandinavian kings or the King of Scotland and the kings of Castile and Portugal had infidel enemies to fight nearer home. The only monarch to pay any attention to the Levant was Alfonso V of Aragon, who had taken over the throne of Naples in 1443. He professed himself eager to lead an expedition to the east, but as his openly expressed ambition was to make himself Emperor of Constantinople, his offers of help were suspect and hardly practical. Even at the papal court, there was a hopeful belief that the new Ottoman sultan was benign. But there the Greek refugees pressed for action before he should acquire experience in government. Their spokesman was an Italian, Francesco Filelfo of Tolentino, who had married the daughter of the Greek professor John Chrysoloras and whose mother-in-law lived at Constantinople. He wrote a passionate appeal to King Charles of France, choosing him because France in the past had taken the lead in the Crusades. He urged the king to organise an army swiftly and to rush it to the east. The Turks would be unable to put up any resistance, he maintained. But King Charles made no response. The Pope Nicholas V, who had succeeded Eugenius IV in 1447, was a scholar and a man of peace, whose noblest achievement was the foundation of the Vatican Library. His friendship for Bessarion, whose learning he greatly admired, made him sympathetic with the Byzantine cause, but he did not know to what secular ruler he could turn for support, nor was he eager to send help to a city which still refused to implement the union of the Byzantine and Catholic churches, signed by its emperor John VIII on its behalf at Florence. 
The Byzantine Emperor Constantine was well aware of this difficulty. In the summer of 1451, he sent an ambassador to the West, Andronicus Briennius Leontaris, who went first to Venice to arrange permission for the emperor to recruit archers in Crete for his army. He then went on to Rome with a friendly message from Constantine to the Pope and with a letter addressed to the Pope written by a committee of the anti-unionists at Constantinople. They called themselves a synaxis as the word synod could not be legally employed by a body acting without the patriarch. The Byzantine emperor had put pressure on them to send this appeal, apparently on the advice of Lucas Notaras. The synaxis proposed the holding of a new council, this time at Constantinople, which should be properly ecumenical, with the eastern patriarchates fully represented and the Roman delegation reduced in numbers. It was signed by many anti-unionists, though their leader, George Genevius, refused to subscribe, believing that no good would come of it. He was right. The Pope was not prepared to set aside the Council of Florence, nor to condone the dissidents' complaints. It was particularly unfortunate that at this moment, probably while Briennius was still in Rome, that the Patriarch Gregory Mamas arrived from Constantinople in voluntary exile. His complaints did not incline Nicholas to be conciliatory. No answer was sent back to the Senate. But the Byzantine emperor was informed that while the delicacies of his position were realised at Rome, he clearly exaggerated the difficulty of enforcing the union. Firm action was needed. The patriarch must be recalled and reinstated. Greeks who refused to understand the decree of union should be sent to Rome for re-education. The Pope's crucial sentence read, If you, with your nobles and the people of Constantinople, accept the decree of union, you will find us and us our venerable brothers, the cardinals of the Holy Roman Church, ever eager to support your honour and your empire. But if you and your people refuse to accept the decree, you will force us to take such measures as are necessary for your salvation and our honour. Such an ultimatum was not likely to ease the Byzantine emperor's task. Instead, it strengthened Gennadius's hand over the opposition. A few months later, an envoy reached Constantinople from the Hussite Church of Prague, a man called Constantine Platris and surnamed the Englishman, perhaps because he was the son of a Lollard refugee from England. He made a public declaration of faith amid popular enthusiasm and he was sent back to Prague with a letter strongly attacking papal pretensions signed by the leading members of the Synaxis, including Gennadius. Bitterness in the city increased at the very time when happy illusions about the Sultan Mehmet's incompetence had finally to be abandoned. Constantine then made a mistake which was to make matters even worse. In the autumn of 1451, the Karamanian emir Ibrahim Bey, believing like the princes of the West in the new Ottoman sultan's incompetence, organised a concerted rising of the recently subdued emirates of Aydin and Jemayan and the emirate of Menteshe against him. Young princes of each dynasty were sent to claim their family thrones while Ibrahim himself invaded Ottoman territory. The local Ottoman commander, Isa Bey, was lazy and ineffectual and Ishak, as governor of Anatolia, begged the sultan to come himself to crush the rebellion. His prompt arrival in Asia had its effect. Resistance crumbled. Ibrahim Bey soon sent to ask for forgiveness while Ishak led a regiment to take over the Menteshi territory. But while the Ottoman sultan was on his way back to Europe, he was faced with unrest in his Janissary regiments who demanded 
higher pay. Mehmet yielded some of their demands, but he degraded their commander and he attached to the regiments large numbers of kennelmen and falconers from the chief huntsman's department on whose loyalty he could rely. Encouraged apparently by the Sultan's difficulties, the Byzantine Emperor Constantine sent envoys to him to complain that the money's promise for the maintenance of Prince Orhan had not been paid. Orhan was originally an Ottoman hostage held at Constantinople, but he was now a pretender to the Ottoman throne. Indeed, Constantine said that it was well to remember that there was an Ottoman pretender at the Byzantine court. When the embassy reached the Sultan, probably at Brusa, Halil Pasha was embarrassed and angry. He knew his master well enough now to realise what his reactions to such impertinence would be. The whole peace policy that he had advocated would be endangered and his own position made impossible. He publicly lost his temper with the Greek ambassadors. Memis, however, contented himself with answering coldly that he would look into the matter when he returned to Adrianople. He cannot have regretted the insolent and fruitless demand. It would help to justify him in breaking his oath not to invade Byzantine territory. He intended to return to Europe by the usual route taken by the Turks across the Dardanelles, but he heard that an Italian squadron was cruising up and down the strait, so he moved to the Bosphorus and shipped himself and his army across from Bayezid's castle at Anadolu Hisar. The land on the European shore was officially still Byzantine, but Mehmet disdained to ask the Byzantine emperor's permission to disembark there. Instead, his keen eye saw how useful it would be to build a fortress at that spot once back at Adrianople, Mehmet ordered the expulsion of the Greeks from the towns of the Lower Struma and the confiscation of all the revenues. Then, in the winter of 1451, he sent orders all over his dominions to collect a thousand skilled masons and a proportionate number of unskilled workmen who were to assemble early next spring at the site that he had chosen at the narrowest part of the Bosphorus, just beyond the village then called Asamartan and now called Bebek, where a ridge juts out into the Strait of the Bosphorus. The winter was hardly over before his surveyors were examining the ground and labourers began to demolish the churches and monasteries nearby, collecting from them such pieces of masonry as could be used again. His orders caused consternation at Constantinople. It was clear that this was the first move towards the siege of the city. The Byzantine emperor hastened to send an embassy to the Sultan to point out that he was breaking a solemn treaty and to remind him that Sultan Bayezid had asked the emperor Emmanuel's permission before building his castle at Anadolu Hisar. The ambassadors were dismissed without an audience. On Saturday the 15th of April work started on the construction of this new fortress. Constantine countered by imprisoning all the Turks that were then in Constantinople but then realised that the gesture was futile and released them. Instead he sent envoys laden with gifts to ask that at least the Greek villages on the Bosphorus should not be harmed. The Sultan paid no attention. In June, Constantine made his last effort to obtain from Mehmet an assurance that the building of the castle did not mean that an attack on Constantinople was to follow. His ambassadors were thrown into prison and then decapitated. It was virtually a declaration of war. The castle, known then to the Turks as Bogaz Kezen, the cutter of the strait, or alternatively the cutter of the throat, and now called Rumeli Hisar, 
was completed on Thursday the 31st of August 1452. Mehmet had spent the previous days in its neighbourhood, then marched with his army right up to the walls of Constantinople. He remained there for three days, carefully examining the fortifications. There could be no doubt now of his intentions. Meanwhile, he issued a proclamation that every ship passing up or down the Bosphorus must pause off the castle to be inspected. Any that disobeyed would be sunk. To make good his order, he had three great cannons, the largest that had yet been seen, placed on one of the towers nearest to the water. It was not an idle threat. Early in November, two Venetian ships sailing from the Black Sea refused to stop. The guns were turned on them, but they escaped without damage. A fortnight later, a third tried to follow their example, but she was sunk by a cannonball, and the captain, Antonio Rizzo, and the crew taken prisoner and brought to Didimoticom, where the sultan was in residence. He ordered the immediate beheading of the crew, and Rizzo, the captain, was sentenced to be impaled and his body to be exposed by the roadside. The fate of the Venetian sailors ended any illusions that the West still held about the character and ambition of the new Sultan Mehmet. Venice found herself in a difficult position. It had its quarter in Constantinople and its commercial privileges had been confirmed by Constantine in 1450, but it was also trading very profitably in Ottoman ports. And there were Venetians who believed that the Turkish conquest of Constantinople might even bring greater stability and prosperity to the commerce of the Levant. Meanwhile, For all his dissatisfaction with the Byzantines, the Pope Nicholas V was sincerely shocked by the proof of the Sultan's intentions. He had induced Frederick III, when he came to Rome to be crowned emperor in March 1452, to send a stern ultimatum to the Ottoman Sultan. But... It was an empty threat, for everyone knew that Frederick had neither the power nor the wish to follow it with action. Alfonso was more deeply involved. He was the king of Naples with interests and claims in Greece, and the Catalans who traded in Constantinople were his subjects. He was full of promises and fulfilled them so far as to send a flotilla of ten ships, for which the Pope paid most of the expenses, into Aegean waters, but he withdrew it a few months later when he allied himself with the Venetians against Francesco Sforza of Milan and was nervous of Genoese reactions. Pope Nicholas, with Bessarion at his side, vainly sought for help elsewhere. But neither his ambassadors nor Constantine's received any response to their appeals. He was now eager to do what he could for the Byzantine emperor, as he had received a letter written soon after the sultan had completed the building of the fortress of Rumeli Hisar, in which Constantine undertook to implement the union of the Byzantine and Catholic churches. Therefore, he instructed Isidore, the metropolitan of Kiev and all Russia, and recently created a cardinal of the Roman Church, to go to the emperor in May 1452. He now left for Constantinople. He paused on the way at Naples, where he recruited at the Pope's expense a force of 200 archers, and at Mytilene, where he was joined by the Archbishop Leonard of 
Kios, a Genoese by origin. He arrived at Constantinople on the 26th of October. His military escort, small though it was, was a token that the Pope would send practical assistance to a people that recognised his authority. The gesture was not wasted. Not only was Isidore welcomed with deference by the Byzantine Emperor and his court, but there was even some enthusiasm among the populace. The Emperor was quick to follow this up. Committees representing the people of the city and the nobles were appointed to give their adherence to the union with the Catholic Church. On the 12th of December 1452, a solemn liturgy was held in the great cathedral of the Holy Wisdom in the presence of the Byzantine Emperor and the court. The Pope and the absent Patriarch were commemorated in the prayers and the decrees of the Union of Florence were read out. Cardinal Isidore, anxious to show that his fellow Greeks had been won over, reported that the church was full. Only Gennadius and eight other monks were absent, but other members of his party painted a different picture. There was indeed no enthusiasm among the Greeks, and henceforward few of them would enter the cathedral where only priests who accepted union were allowed to serve. To Archbishop Leonard, even the emperor seemed to be lukewarm about the union and weak in his efforts to enforce it, while Lucas Notaras was, he thought, its open enemy. If Notaras did indeed make his oft-quoted remark preferring the sultan's turban to the cardinal's hat, it was doubtless provoked by irritation with the intransigence of such Latins as Leonard, who would not understand his efforts at reconciliation. After the Union had been proclaimed, there was no more open opposition in Constantinople. Gennadius kept silence in his prison cell. The bulk of the people accepted the accomplished fact with sullen passivity. But they worshipped only in the churches whose priests were untainted. Even many of its supporters hoped that if the city were spared, the decree would be amended. Had the Union been followed quickly by the appearance of ships and soldiers from the West, its practical advantages might have won it general support. But only too soon would it be shown that it was too little and too late. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe, to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the Ottomans as they close in on Constantinople. See you then.